John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the latest from Pixar Studios, Coco, the uh, man who invented Christmas, the sort of biopic about the creation of A Christmas Carol, and the latest from Dan Gilroy, the writer-director of Nightcrawler, Roman J. Israel Esquire. Let's get started. We may have our differences, but nothing's more important than family. It's just Dante. Never name a street dog. They'll follow you forever. Now, go get my shoe. I'm not going to lie. There was a lot of uh, trepidation coming out about this. I mean, you heard me previous episodes, and especially last week during the trailer talk segment. uh, I was not... um, sold on this movie as it were like i said i thought it was very (laughs) the the premise the uh, aesthetics a lot of stuff seemed very close to the uh the book of life which was one of my favorite movies to come out in 2014 and thankfully that was all more misconception it was more my own prejudices i guess you'd say i'm I, i was prejudging the movie based on something that I loved, and this trying to do something similar, which is going to lead into the discussion portion. Basically, Coco is not... It it very... It shares the bare bones of of the Book of Life. Because the two go in wildly separate directions. Coco uh, centers more on family on wholesomeness, the kind of storytelling that Pixar is known for, whereas The Book of Life wanted to do more of a uh, fantasy, adventure, romance sort of uh, storyline and focused more on that and the comedy and whatnot, whereas uh, Coco really wanted to do more of a focus on familia and, and the importance of that. So it's not the same, especially since uh, you know Pixar had that more had their more realis- photorealistic quality to their characters, and the Book of Life wanted to do more of a story storybook like it's being told through marionettes. It, it was a beautiful style. I loved Book of Life, and um, so yeah, Coco is is it it shares the bare bones of the of the Book of Life and that premise. But that's about it. Uh, the story here is uh, Miguel is uh, I probably like, what, eight or nine years old. Uh, he's a kid who loves music, loves playing music, is, is, it just adores music and, is an, and admires the, the, the local town hero, um, Ernesto de la Cruz, who is kind of this like uh, Mexican Elvis sort of figure he's very much uh into the white white polyester suits and did movies and was one of the most famous musicians to come out of mexico in this universe and so he's the town hero except for miguel's family who uh uh they don't really specify that it's ernesto but uh the family's great-great-grandmother um was left behind what oh, oh, great either great great grandmother or great 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 grandmother like we're talking like very very long uh um spaces of time i'm technically this was the 40s but we're talking like three four or five generations ago and so the real the, the sort of matriarch uh of the family tree was left behind by a musician who went off to pursue his dream after they had a kid. And uh, that that matriarch's daughter is the titular Coco, Mama Coco. And she is very, and she is like at least 80s, 90s, if not pushing 100. And she's wheelchair bound. She is very, you know, she is, it's a miracle she's she's made it this far. But uh, yeah, it, it, she, she, you know, she's having trouble remembering things and that becomes a plot point eventually but miguel 
really wants to pursue music and his family doesn't approve. They they think it's more important to stick with Familia and not not to be a musician who leaves your family behind. Like like the great like that great grandfather did. And so in in defiance of his family, he decides to steal and he uh he makes this connection thinking that Ernesto de la Cruz was his great grandfather, was his great great grandfather, the one the musician who ran away. And so he thinks that uh de la Cruz's uh very fancy like white guitar with a uh, Dia de los Muertos skull, I forget what the, the specific the you know, but he's got that that very uh, ornate skull design on the uh, on the where the frets are on the guitar, and he thinks that that's his birthright. Then, and he's gonna steal that in order to play in a um, a sort of uh, musician uh, musical like battle of the bands, essentially. I forget what the exact terminology they used was, but it's essentially like a battle of the bands, you know, best music, best musician wins and whatnot. And so he, in stealing the guitar, he lays a curse on him, on himself. Cause not only did he screw over his family by breaking the matriarch's photo and keeping it from the, uh, keeping her from crossing over during Dia de los Muertos, he has cursed himself by stealing from the dead. And so in order to make it right, he has to ask for his family's uh, blessing in order to cross back over and make it right. And instead of doing that, he decides he wants to forego his traditional familia, the familia that, he, that, he, that he's known, in order to get Ernesto de la Cruz's blessing because the, he was the musician of the family. And so the story is about him, and along the way he meets this other, this more bumbling, um, almost forgotten uh, skeleton named Hector. And the two of them work try to get him to Ernesto de la Cruz to get him to cross over. And not to give too much away about the storyline, but it basically not everything is as Miguel perceives it to be. And eventually he does learn the truth. And he want and he learns the importance of familia over being a musician, and he eventually makes it back to the real world in order to make it right and in order to help out his true familia. So it's very, it is very different. It is it is very much a different beast from uh, the Book of Life, which was which was more focused on romantic from on the romantic plots and on. Uh, like an adventure storyline, and while it was about, and while it did feature a musician uh, going against his family's traditions, uh, in the Book of Life's case about a bullfighting, and in this case about just familia, and they did shoes. They were shoe repairmen and women, and they you know they did shoe repair and shoe design and shoe creation, and they were cobbler. You know they were all cobblers, and so it's it's going get while it is going against that. Um, you know, tradition uh, uh, against your family's traditions in order to pursue your dreams. Here, it's more you don't have to forego your family in order to pursue your dreams. They can be one and the same. They can coincide. They can. There is not. There is not a zero sum game between your passion and your family. They can do. You can do both. And that you know. So that's a very. It, so they are different entities. And when you when you really look at them, even though there are those initial similarities, and I gotta say, Coco really sold me. Coco suffered from a lot of lackluster marketing, especially when it was really put more pushing an Olaf short. Which oh my god, you guys! I liked Frozen. Okay, I, I liked it. I liked Frozen. Frozen was good. This short is cloying and terrible and does not bode well for the sequel they want to do. I'm not into Frozen 2 if it's going to be anything like this short because it was painful to sit through. I don't think, I don't think anybody in my theater cared about the short. They were, they were, and and it's not, we're talking a short that's over 20 minutes long. Think about it. When you go to a Disney or a Pixar movie, 
an animated movie and they show the shorts, what are they like? Five minutes, maybe 10 minutes at the most. It's something short and sweet and to the point. This drags itself out with really lackluster musical numbers and cloying jokes and it's ultimately just not interesting. And I really hope that this isn't what Frozen 2 is gonna be like because it's gonna be a disaster. But yeah, aside from that, uh, Coco itself kind of suffered from lackluster marketing and it didn't feel like Pixar was pushing it the way it did. it's done things like Cars. I don't even remember if Cars 3 got that big of a marketing push. That Cars was always has always been more of a uh, toy line merchandising affair rather than anything to do with actual box office sales. So I don't know about Coco. I don't know. I feel, I get the feeling that Disney Pixar was not um, was very trepidatious on Coco themselves, and so they didn't push it the same way that they've done anything else by Disney, where you just see it everywhere. I didn't see Coco very much any place, and I really hope that people word of mouth spreads and says, look. Save yourself like 30 minutes. Go in, wait until the Olaf short is over in America and Mexico. Because apparently in the UK, they don't get it. They don't get that short in the UK, which go on time if you're in the UK because see Coco. See Coco is really good. It's really good. It's genuinely heartfelt and it's not twee or precious, which is what I was worried about it. Like, the worst I'll say is that the setup is the se the first act suffers from the same stuff that any sort of artist in a in a more traditional family setting goes through. You have to suffer through all of the same stuff of him keeping a secret that he loves his art and that his family doesn't approve and he has to go against his family. So the first act is probably the weakest point. But aside from that, it is genuinely just a beautiful, heartfelt and enjoyable thing to behold. It is definitely gonna. I honest, honestly, it's probably gonna win Best Picture at the at the Oscars and and, and anything with animated with the animated features, just because um, Disney Pixar and it's on. A, it's a good year, so it's a good year. This one's gonna. It's not like this doesn't deserve it, but you know, it's it is what it is with those places. They real aside from like I think the Annies, which are animators and animation studios. Uh, who are deciding what the best is. This is still good. This is genuinely good and very enjoyable. And it's definitely a return to form for Pixar after so many years of, of lackluster sequels. And I genuinely hope that people go, you people, please go to see this. Go support Coco. It's really good. And it shows Disney and Pixar, we want more of this. More Original stories, more stories that feature non-European non, you know, non, non uh, history and folklore and mythologies and storylines. You know, you want, you want to hear things like this and things from like maybe Latin, and more of Latin America and maybe Africa and more of Asia and things that aren't the same European folklore we've always heard time and again growing up. We want more stories, things that... People who who haven't heard, people who didn't grow up in those cultures, maybe haven't heard before. We need more of these kind of stories out there. So go support Coco. If for nothing else than to say, we want more things like this. So that about does it. Yeah, Coco's good, and go support it. It's definitely a step in the right direction. Have to get to the princess by nine o'clock. But you still don't have an ending. Merry Merry Christmas to one and all. enough. Back to work. God bless us, everyone. This one, unlike Coco, I was very hesitant in see, in going ahead to see it because it felt... Well, you know how Disney, whenever they... Even when they tried to tackle serious subjects and more... And things that had to do with real life. Like, I, my mind immediately went to um, 
uh, Doug Walker's Nostalgia Critic review for Balto, where they made so they took this actual real life event and fantasized it so much that it barely recognize that is barely recognizable to the actual course of events. And here, apparently, Charles Dickens was a schizophrenic who talked to his own characters, because that's the only thing I can glean from this from this interpretation. Uh, the premise here is it's Charles Dickens writing a Christmas Carol and whatever truth there may be in the movie is completely bought is completely overcome by honestly tying it into the story itself as though in order for Charles Dickens to write a Christmas Carol, he couldn't have created that whole cloth from his own mind the same way Shakespeare. It, I said this in, I think, my Letterboxd review. It's very anti-Stratfordian. It's almost anti-Stratfordian, the kind of take there where Charles Dickens had to have lived the kind of stuff that happens to Scrooge in order to, um, you know, in order to write what he does and to write something as good as A Christmas Carol. And he has to go out and relive his past sins, as it were, in his, in his own shady past and in what happened to him and what he's afraid of, a la Scrooge. And that feels, while I guess that makes sense cinematically, you want that, you, that makes sense visually, it's really stupid in retrospect. It does not look good in re you know in high you know when you try to when you sit down and think about it afterwards like oh yeah he had to go back to where he used to work as a kid and because he's ashamed of like once you start to think about it like why would what other than to tie it into a christmas carol why would he do any of these things and did he, he, I doubt that a guy like Dickens needed to go back at, what does he, like, he draws from his own personal life experiences, yes. He always wrote down, like, apparently he always wrote down characters and people's names to use in stories. But that doesn't mean he go, he would physically go to these people's, to dis, these different places in order to glean inspiration, I don't think. Like, that. that's, that's almost too silly. And... So yeah, you've got uh, Dan Stevens as Charles Dickens, uh, Christopher Plummer as as the his interpretation of Scrooge, and uh, Jonathan Price is his dad, who is a con artist and a guy who uh, went who went to, went to debtor's prison and had and which is and the reason why Charles had to work had to live in a workhouse, and it's. It's fine. It's not bad. I just didn't... I just feel like the fantastical elements take away from the probably more interesting aspect of Charles Dickens writing this Christmas story under pressure. You know, he's doing it out of pocket. He's doing it as a passion project. And instead of focusing on that aspect of the story, it's trying to do... To try to add like fancy, fa like like weird fantastical elements, like him talking to his own characters and the characters talking back, and you know, like the characters living in the space with him, occupying the space while he's trying to work, like like what you know that that wasn't necessary. Like it's it's cute, it's cute, I guess, but it doesn't really add anything to the story. It's a, it's a distraction. It feels like a distraction. It acts like a distraction. And that's why I honestly, I'm not going to watch this again. There's honestly nothing in this movie that makes me want to watch it again. Because in all intents and purposes, it's an adaptation of A Christmas Carol. It's just they tried to imbue elements of the actual Charles Dickens and the creation of A Christmas Carol into it. But it still follows the same storyline and the plot points and all of the elements of the Chris of the classic A Christmas Carol, and it we don't I didn't need a Christmas Carol with Dickens as Scrooge, I didn't need that. I'm good. I 
can just watch a better adaptation of A Christmas Carol instead of just watching your weird hybrid of real life and fiction. I don't know. I, I've never been into stuff like that. Like, I get that, um, from what I heard, Ed Wood is more or less like if Ed Wood told his own biopic, you know, it had some of the elements of an Ed Wood story in it, which, you know, sometimes that can work, you know, with, when you're dealing with creative types, that's interesting, that can work. But more often than not, if you're trying to imbue weird, fantastical, whimsical elements into a biopic, it's more or less to distract the kids who aren't going to be interested, in which case, why bother? You know, if you're if you're if all you're doing is distracting the kids, you could do any number of things instead of trying to tell this story. I don't know. So, the man who invented Christmas. Uh, I'm sure there's an interesting story out there, and I'm sure someone has probably done a more a better take on it. But this, I don't know. Your mileage may vary. You may have more of a stomach for these kinds of these kind of whimsical, uh, fanciful elements added into true life. Uh, stories, but for me, it didn't work at all. You don't just walk away from this. I'm not walking away. I can finish this. Each one of us is greater than the worst thing we've ever done. And the last one out this week, the latest from Dan Gilroy, Roman J. Israel Esquire. I was excited for this, and I got pretty much what I was expecting. Premise here is Roman J. Israel Esquire is played by Denzel Washington and is an aging civil rights lawyer. And, like, he was an activist way back in the 60s, and he's been a criminal defense attorney uh, for years doing work to... Uh, help out people whose civil rights have been trampled on and whatnot. And unfortunately his, his firm has been, you know, is going under, especially since his partner and the main person behind the firm, um, had a heart attack and is, and is, uh, on the verge of death. So he had to look for, he's had to look for work elsewhere, which brought him to Colin Farrell, who plays uh, a student of his partner, uh, when he, when the partner used to teach at law school, and Colin Farrell is a more high pro, higher profile, like like he looks like Gordon Gecko. Colin Farrell's character looks like Gordon Gecko, and that's essentially what it, it what it amounts to. Only instead of Gordon Gecko being, being instead of him being the traditional enticing Roman J. Esquire and tempting him with the with the more um, superficial and the more and the more, um, like, more vice, and the more vice-heavy sort of, uh, you know, superfluous side of law, where it's all big money, and nothing, and, uh, and trampling over all of your clients, and, do, and doing, doing, uh, you know, the more villainous sort of lawyer, he's more, he, he genuinely believes in what Roman is doing, he knows Roman is talented, and he wants Roman to work for him, but and it's more of how this guy who really has been it, it, I mean you as you follow this the story you see Colin Farrell want to become more like Roman you see that Roman Roman is, has this has this effect on the people around him and Colin Farrell is one of those guys like no this guy's got a point I want to I want to be more like I want him to help me out and help me make his vision a reality and so that's that's kind of what happens, and and while that's going on, Roman meets up with an activist, um, a local activist in L.A. who uh, believes in what he's who who knows who he is and thinks he's doing he's done great work and wants him to help her out with her activism, and sadly, Roman just Roman as just felt so underappreciated for so long that he gets kind of sick of it like he tries you know he's he he gets screwed he gets uh uh crapped upon by the law itself when he tries to practice it in in his partner's wake 
when he tries to speak to young activists, they're all worried. They're more worried about semantics and uh, like the, the scene from the trailer is he's asking why the sisters are standing and the brothers are sitting and like it even goes down to like I'm not your sister and it's like he's speaking in old 60s civil rights lingo and the and the terminology and the language has changed to such a point where now people find take offense to the idea of his ling of his terminology like I, and whether or not you agree that it's gendered and sexist that he believes that the women should be allowed should you know the men should stand for the women and be and to give up their seats and allow the women to sit it's a very old school notion i mean you're once again you could you can buy into that or not it's not wrong but the argue, but the fact but the fact is roman does not you know feels like what what good is there to his activism and if all if people are more worried about the semantics uh, the, the, those those kind of semantics instead of the bigger picture. At the same time, he's also screwed himself over because he's more worried about if women are if women are sitting or standing instead of just getting to the point. But yeah, he's Roman is an interesting character. But yeah, he he tries to you know he 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 gets he basically gets sick of being the butt of the the universe's joke and decides to take be more proactive and take take more of a lead on things and he eventually um he event you know so he eventually does something unscrupulous that uh leads him into some money so he can finally change things around and he does so with and he does so and he starts doing so with um the firm he, he changes his look from the more um disheveled uh you know kind of like like just under the poverty line look where he's a dusty suit and his afro is is so is so is so out there that it's that it's almost that it can almost get its own gravity to shorter you know shorter you know he he he, he makes it slick back he makes himself look presentable he makes himself look more like Colin Farrell's character and he gets to become more of a more of a traditional attorney and then he starts, but then as things go on, he starts to realize he's sold, like the movie opens with the, with the climate, with the thing from the client, with this bit from the climax where he literally writes a supposition to sue himself for being a hypocrite to him, to his own values and whether he should be disbarred from the California Bar Association and the human race. So he takes it, he find, he starts to realize I, everything I'm doing is against every value I've ever believed in, and he go and it's it's a really interesting character journey overall. That being said, Roman is a very hard character to to get into to uh, to be on the side of, let's say, because he I, um I'm not sure if they were going for anything more. Than just these weird idiosyncratic behaviors, like he's very like he's very, like he's only only uses older technology for the most part until he until his major shift. Um, he's all he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of the California uh, legal code, and um, like like he's he's all you know he 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 talks he he doesn't really look at people in the eye for the most part. He's always kind of looking down. He seems to have some traits of autism, but it's not fully autistic behavior. And it's never specified that he's on the spectrum. I mean, they specify that he's, he's talented, that he's it's almost savantish, but he's never fully, you know, said to be one thing or the other. And so most of it, I'm assuming it's mainly meant to be personality traits and not... Um, you know, symptoms of a disorder, let's say. But that being said, it's he's also he's also kind of a dick. Like I said, he he he's focused on women sitting when he's talking about at, when he when he should be focusing on activism, and he gets into an argument that kind of turns him away from activism because the the woman gets all up, up, upset that 
he that he implies that they should sit and why is he implied like even if you thought that chivalry should be uh, you know adhered to that men should give up their seats for women that's not the discussion dude save it for another day but he's very impulsive and like 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 the beginning of the movie his buddy gets a heart his his his, his partner gets a heart attack and he tries to argue cases in the partner's stead and all he does is screw things up so roman is a very interesting character he's not as compelling as um as dan gilroy's last character lewis bloom played by jake gyllenhaal that character had a lot more he's he's very much uh he's a much more interesting and compelling character whereas roman roman is kind of you know it's it, it he's interesting but he's not he, he doesn't really compel you to understand him whereas lewis bloom was very much like you're trying to figure out how this guy ticks as the movie goes along and you see what he does here it's it's more of like a it's more of like a character storyline of rise and fall so to speak and and it's not bad but at the same time it's not exactly the most compelling version of this story either so it's not terrible i'm not going to say that it's still dan gilroy he still did a great job the other the other actors uh denzel is denzel does a, gives a good performance for the character uh colin farrell is is good uh the other actors who um who play the supporting cast are solid it's just i don't know i feel like a, a couple more drafts could have made could have made this work better but for what we got it was all right you know not as not as memorable as nightcrawler but not a bad follow-up either so uh we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with a discussion about similarities and uh, ripping each other off in Hollywood. Into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one. And alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once more with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fan cast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. this in the past uh, I, I have I swear it has to have come up I I really need to go back and make a list of what topics I've discussed already so I don't repeat myself too much but this time around I wanted to talk about um, Coco and the book of life and how similarities don't always equate to ripping uh, somebody off um, with in the case of Coco and the book of life they share a similar inspiration Dia de los Muertos uh, the story of an artist going against traditional, the the traditional family stuff, and but and after that it kind of different. You know they go on different paths. Um, Coco wants to focus more on the fact that you can do both, whereas uh, Book of Life wanted to do something more adventurous and saying pursue your passion, and that your family will understand. Uh, other times like. It's hard to thing with Hollywood is it's hard to say what is a ripoff and what is a because uh, that's the thing. Coco has been in production since about the same time as the Book of Life. Book of Life just managed to get out faster, but Coco has been in production for years and it's hard. You know, it's hard to say what it's so it's, it's easy to say, you know, and plus it. A ripoff, I think, will have more elements of that original thing than than uh, than people will realize. Like, perfect example: uh, a lot of the early DreamWorks uh, movies were ripoffs of their of their of the Pixar 
stories they were about to do because Katzenberg's a, a douchebag little thief. That's the thing. Katzenberg, when he when he threw a hissy fit because he couldn't get his way at Disney, decided to steal a bunch of story ideas from Pixar and when he founded DreamWorks Animation Studios. Katzenberg is a little douchebag crybaby who decided, yeah, I'm going to start my own studio. Screw you guys. And that's why a bunch of those early DreamWorks movies are ripoffs. Ants is a ripoff of Bugs Life. Shark's Shark Tales is a ripoff of Finding Nemo. And while Madagascar was a ripoff of the wild, Madagascar did show that they had a better thing going than the wild, which was really lackluster. Thankfully, since then, DreamWorks has gone off in their own direction. But a bunch of those early DreamWorks movies were, in fact, ripoffs of their other of their counterparts because they had Katzenberg was throwing a little hissy fit and decided to do everything he could to spite all his enemies. But uh, other times, like when, it, when like whenever they do those competing movies, like. The White House Down versus um, uh, Olympus Has Fallen or Deep Impact versus Armageddon or uh, Volcano versus Dante's Peak. A lot of times, they no one, I don't know, it's hard to say what's a ripoff because if it comes out at the same time, usually the one has been either on the, maybe one has been on the shelf until a better release date and competing against another so another similar premised movie is a good time to get yourself out there. But a lot of times, most of this stuff is kind of, it just kind of happens serendipitously. Like, oh, um, somebody wants to do the White House chain of succession stuff. And so Roland Emmerich does his one thing and then Antoine Fuqua and the guy and whoever the writers behind Olympus has fallen do their do their one thing. And it just so happens they start production at the same time. And a lot of times studios will be maybe, you know, if anything, a studio will will say, uh, oh, Fox is doing their thing. Don't we do we have something like that? So, I mean. They'll copy each other, but at the same time, it's not a guarantee which one will be good, if one will finish at all. But very rarely do you see similar premises as true ripoffs of one another. Now, I will say, lately, usually a ripoff, what separates it from a similar premise, is time. Like, you can do the same premise and have it be have it go in different directions but a lot of times what you're in it, what you're really doing is ripping somebody off this past year we've seen like three different movies that feature the groundhog's day conceit of waking up on the same day and reliving it again and again or is it just the two is it before i fall and happy death day i swear there was another one but at the same time it's re it's redoing that again and again and that's just the Groundhog's Day premise, only you didn't really do anything else with it. It's just, you know, the Groundhog's Day premise, but in this new setting. That feels more like a ripoff rather than trying to do similar plot points, as it were. You know, uh, ah, shoot, I'm trying to think of good examples of ripping off, but, um, like, like, that's the other thing, too. Rip-offs tend to be, you know, like, if you compare the mockbusters, the cash-grab movies, the stuff that, like, the Asylum does, they are, that's, that's what people think, that's what a true rip-off is, where you didn't even try, you just want to confuse people and think, oh, this is the actual thing, but no, it's your cheap off-brand version that, nobody wanted and except you're trying to take some of that market share from the from the less uh savvy consumer and very rarely do big budget studios like major hollywood studios rip each other off so to speak it's very it's very rare that 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 you'll see full-on uh theft of ideas more often than not it's you either start at about the same time and you're just so happy. It's just, you know, coincidence. 
Otherwise, it's more just. Otherwise, it, it you know very it's very rare that you, that you get a case like Katzenberg where he full on stole story ideas in order to found DreamWorks. More often than not, whenever a, a studio has competing store competing movies, you'd have to look at the actual production time scale and see who started first, if and see if word got about that this. You know this volcano script is getting really good buzz. We should do we have one of our own in our you know in in our submissions that sort of thing, because it's it's very hard to because more often than not it's it's easier to believe that oh they didn't you know they they weren't uh, stealing an idea they were just doing something similar because that's the thing with Coco and Book of Life is they started about the same time Book of Life got out faster because. Um, it doesn't, it wasn't trying to do the same sort of animation quality that Pixar wanted out of Coco and probably maybe Coco went through some rewrites. It's hard to say. I'm, I, I don't know much about the production timeline of that, but, but Book of Life got out faster. And so that's what got into more people's minds. So I think that's, that's also to the detriment of Coco because this other thing did it first and did it so well that the idea that now you have to compete with that in the hearts and minds of the audience and so you have to be like no no no, look it's the same it's the same setting it's similar premises but we're totally different and then they are and they're right but it's just a matter of reminding people that look just because we share similar elements we're not trying to steal anything from this other thing we're trying to do our own thing and and it's hard and once again it's hard to say it's hard to find cases like Katzenberg's where it is outright uh take you know theft of ideas in order to um stick it to your previous bosses but uh more, yeah so more often than not it is a case of serendipity like well it, we share a thing it, we you know people wanted to do something similar Use a similar setting, use a similar premise. That happens all the time. I mean, how many my movies themselves have a limited premise set that you can use from? There are only so many stories you can tell with characters, and so yeah, it's 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 more it's it's a it's a really odd coincidence that Pixar had been working on this Dia de los Muertos thing for so long, then and then got beaten out by a Mexican studio. Uh, but at the same time, it happens. You know, it's not like they were. It's, I, I get. I. I highly doubt that Pixar would be the ones to be to go out of their way to steal an idea, especially since it takes so long to make a Pixar movie. Pixar takes so long for any of their movies to get off the ground and to finally make it to to finally make it to um to the screen that it's it really I, it, it's really doubtful that they go out of their way to steal ideas from other people. Because they would much plus they plus I get the feeling that they've always been of the mindset of look let's just keep it in house let's not try to look at uh, look at things elsewhere let's just brainstorm around us and then we'll figure out what will what works and what doesn't and what fits in our model and whatnot although um you know I do kind of hope that maybe with the with the leaving of John Lasseter we can we can kind of return to the older Pixar because. Uh, from what, yeah, given everything I've heard, Lasseter was not exactly the most um, inviting of of directors there at Pixar. Like, apparently, he apparently he was. I, I can identify with the idea of him not adhering to personal space issues because I had that issue as well in high school. So, I mean, but at the same time, you're an adult; you should know these things, dude. I, even in high school, I should have known these things, but I was not paying attention to them. And I had to be told otherwise before I got myself into trouble. Lassiter, you're like twice my age, dude. You should you should be on top of this stuff. You should not be the kind of guy who just is super creepy to his staff. That's not cool, dude. And not to mention the fact that they there's been... Like, if you look into the production of Brave... And the good dinosaur, there's, there, you know, Pixar is not exactly pristine when it comes to their behind the scenes work. There's, there's definitely some, there's definitely been some issues with, and dealing with, uh, 
you know, with their with, with their uh, internal staff, and and not to mention the fact that most of the most of their actual directors are a bunch of white dudes. Let's be real. Like most of Pixar's movies have been directed by a bunch of white dudes. You very rarely see women directing, and uh, even people of color directing. There's not a lot of people on. You know, there's not a lot of diversity at Pixar. Aside from maybe the animation staff, because that can that allows for more diversity, because you just need bodies. But you should also allow, like, allow for these storytellers and allow for these animators to to take the lead on a project. You know, if there's do they have an idea for something, let them take a lead. But Pixar has kept it mainly to their same group of white dudes, so it's not exactly. Uh, Surprising that the kind of stuff that may, you know that Pixar's not immune from the kind of stuff that's been going on in Hollywood. Yeah, <laughs> that's not surprising in the least, honestly. I mean, they they're based out of Silicon Valley, and they're and they're and they're a Hollywood studio. Of course, there's probably going to be those same kind of douchebags that you find in tech tech companies and Hollywood studios in there. It's almost impossible for it not to. Um. So yeah, um. I wasn't fully prepared for this. I'm going to be honest. Uh, this past Thanksgiving kind of, I, I don't know what it was, some kind of bug that's been going around or something, but I've not exactly been myself. So this is just kind of me rambling for the most part. I'll probably do a more in-depth look at this and when that comes up again, but this is more just me trying to get something out there for people. especially. And that's the thing. We've got no trailer talk. So as soon as I'm done with the discussion portion, we're just going to end it. So I think we I think I, I think I, we can finish rambling and we can be done with it because honestly, we, I got nothing else to say at this point. Uh, this was just kind of off the top of my head. So uh, that about does it for this week. Uh, I thought the disaster artist was going to be coming out next week, but apparently they're saving that wide release for the eighth. But I don't know, like nothing seems to be coming out in wide release next week and it's too early for me to see what my local theaters are playing so it's so i can't say what i'll be seeing next week i don't even know if i'll be seeing anything next week next week may be all netflix and chat for all i know because there's just nothing out there uh the next wide release listed on the numbers is just getting started which is that uh Morgan Freeman, Tommy Lee Jones comedy. Other than that, like, it's hard. Like, there doesn't seem to be anything up until um, Ferdinand and the Last Jedi. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Maybe I'll take some time to catch up on the stuff I missed and see if there's anything that may be played in limited release that I never got to see in theaters. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, that about does it for this week, so that means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. Be sure to catch, and be sure while you're there to check out all of our other fine programming, my Dungeons and Dragons podcast where I DM a bunch of, uh, of, 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 of your usual party fair. Let's be real for those who play. Yeah, it's not that different from what from what any other dm has to deal with um that's over at uh tragic missile i also do a uh japanese pop culture pop japanese culture and media podcast where uh it's two westerners check uh who are fans of japanese media talking about japanese culture and it i like to compare it to um to gaijin goomba's channel on youtube because it's that's basically the closest um, in terms of uh, popularity that people would know who he is, and in terms of content. Because while Gaijin tends to get more in depth because he's because he's much more familiar with that, Mike is Mike is definitely Mike is definitely the more culturally aware and the culturally in tuned uh, since he spent time in Japan teaching English as well. Um, I'm just more of the standard Westerner looking at looking in uh commenting on it but we have fun we talk we've been talking about stuff like ringu um pokemon we've talked about pokemon uh Yu-Gi-Oh, uh several anime uh mike has some great suggestions for anime and uh we should have a nintendo one coming out pretty soon but yeah check out 
Majide on the on the on the site. We've also got uh, Ultimate Showdown, which is a tournament style. Who would win in a fight? It's a, it's one of my favorite shows that we do. I love it. And um, yeah, I mean, whatever tickles your fancy, we probably have something for you on the site. So that's g u m b i e c a t networks dot com. And if you don't want to go to the website, you can you can easily find us on any on most of your third party apps and as well as Google Play and iTunes. So whatever podcasting app you use, look for our look for our shows. And if it's not available, just let us know, and we'll be sure to try and you know make it more available to you. And while you're there, uh, subscribe. You know, make sure you subscribe and leave a five star rating and review if you can. Let people know that you like this show. You want them to check it out too. And other than that, uh, you can always share us on social media. Uh, for us, the social media home of Popcorn Junkie is Facebook.com/slash/PopcornJunkie. That's where all the major uh, announcements will be. That's when all the that's when all that's where all the big news comes out. And uh, other than that, you can check us out on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. There you'll get the Facebook feed plus the uh, Twitter trailer talk and much along segments where I comment on the trailers as I'm watching them in the theaters. And uh, you can I comment on a movie as I'm watching it, be it a terrible movie in an empty theater or just a movie at home. And uh, I'm also on Instagram. We've joined the Instagrams. Uh, I'm at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. And there you'll get uh, a lot of the same, a lot of the major announcements that I do for the Facebook feed uh, are through Instagram now. And then, of course, I've started Twitch streaming. Uh, I've been wanting to do gaming for a long time, so I've started... I've just started on Friday nights. I Twitch, I, I stream on Twitch under Popcorn Junkie PWH, and uh, they're all right now. I'm playing Cuphead, uh, and I'm and I do a long form Pokemon playthrough where I'm going through all of the main series games from Red all the way to whenever it ends because it's gonna take a while. So. You can join me there on Friday nights around 10 o'clock or so, uh, Eastern time. And other than that, um, I think uh, if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of ways for me to improve, corrections I should, you know, corrections I should amend, send all that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and Thanksgiving week was rough, y'all. And... Hopefully, uh, we can, as we head into the last month of the, of the year, we can end it on a high note. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nephew.deviantart.com for more of his artwork.